Welcome to Get Found, Get Funded, a podcast all about creating visibility, paths for growth, and opportunity for entrepreneurs. We focus on those entrepreneurs who are statistically underrepresented in the startup ecosystem. Your hosts are Zena Island, president of X Plus PR, a media relations agency, angel investor Aurelia Flores, managing member of Athena Digital Media Group, a digital marketing agency, and angel investor Christina Francis, president of Esteem Logic, an information technology, consulting, and training firm. In each episode, you will meet a new startup founder, hear about their company and where they are now. We then focus on one key challenge facing that entrepreneur, a challenge that is common among startups. Each episode also features a guest expert to weigh in on the challenge. Welcome to Get Found, Get Funded. Welcome back to another episode of Get Found, Get Funded. Launched in 1988, the National Women's Business Council is a nonpartisan federal advisory council created to serve as an independent source of advice and policy recommendation to the President, Congress, and the United States Small Business Administration on economic issues of importance to women business owners. This esteemed council advises on issues of impact and importance to women entrepreneurs and business owners through data, research, engagement, news, resources, and annual reports. Today, we have Liz Sarah, chairperson of the National Women's Business Council. Liz Sarah is the founder and president of Best Marketing, LLC, where she consults for more than 90 small businesses in the high-tech sector and serves as a chief business advisor to entrepreneurs in creating and executing go-to-market strategies. Previously, she, she played a principal role as co-founder of Spaceworks, an e-commerce software company where she facilitated its startup and growth to nearly $25 million in revenue. Ms. Sarah recently completed her term as a first female board chair of the Digman Center of Entrepreneurship at the University of Maryland's Robert H. Smith School of Business. She is also an adjunct professor of marketing at the Smith School of Business. She's an angel investor, a mentor to startup CEOs through many incubators and accelerators, and a frequent author and conference speaker on topics related to entrepreneurship and business. Ms. Sarah holds her bachelor's degree from the State University of New York and her master's degree from the University of Maryland. Liz, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here and to have our conversation today. Absolutely. So on July 23rd, which just happens to be my son's birthday. And mine too. Mine too. Ah, and Zena's birthday. Your birthdays. <laughs> so July 23rd last year, the president appointed you to serve a three-year term as chairperson for National Women's Business Council. What an honor. Congratulations. Well, thank you so much. I'm really excited to be in this role, honestly. Uh, there's uh, a lot of work that we have uh, to help women entrepreneurs going forward, and I think we've got a great organization uh, that's already made some uh, early strides to get some things done, but thank you. Yeah, absolutely, and we're so excited to dig a little deeper into what National Women's Business Council has done and what's coming up, but before we do that, you have had such an extraordinary career and journey. Let's talk a little bit more about your journey as an entrepreneur and business owner and how did you ultimately select entrepreneurship as your career trajectory? Well, it's an interesting question because when I started my career, there really wasn't any such thing as entrepreneurship. I mean, you never heard that word anywhere. I was just uh, probably of all the things that I've done, uh, most of them have occurred through serendipity. Being in the right place, 
at a particular time where something was presented to me and I either decided to go with it or or not. Uh, one of the few things that I decided and made a concerted effort to do was get into the technology industry. And that was back in the early 80s when technology was really just getting started and the PC was just starting to become a business tool, uh, certainly not a consumer tool because no one had a PC at home because no one knew what to do with it at home. So uh, one of the things that inspired me to get involved in the tech industry was a book that I had read way back then called Megatrends. And it talked about 10 trends which were going to impact our future. And one of the big ones had to do with technology. And after reading that book, I decided I wanted to take what I had been doing in my career, which was marketing and public relations for organizations, and focus that uh, functional area in the tech field. So once I started in tech back in the early 80s, I've never looked back. And many of the roles that I took on and was invited to participate in were in tech companies that were really pioneering very disruptive and very different things to help businesses process better, function better, operate better, make more money at less cost. And I worked for companies at the time, uh, LexisNexis and United Press International, and even a company called America Online, for those of you that remember that company way back in the very early 90s. And so the things that we were doing uh, involved launching technology-based products that would help businesses and the workforce in those businesses do things better, faster, or cheaper. And so when I was approached by a few outside people to start a company in uh, the, let's call it the online information space in the early 90s, very similar to what America Online was doing for consumers, we were going to do for businesses, I said, sure, why not? And that was the first company that I co-founded with two other gentlemen. And that company, after a few years in the early 90s when the internet took hold and everyone wanted to do everything on the what was called the World Wide Web mm-hmm. back then, mm-hmm. we merged my first one or really pivoted it uh, into an e-commerce software company. And so as I look back on my career in tech, there was just sort of a natural progression of things that occurred without me saying, gee, now I want to start my own software company, or now I want to work for a company that used to do A, B, and C, meaning United Press International, and redirect it into a different direction. Things just occurred. Mm -hmm. And um, I feel very fortunate and and very thankful that uh, I was well-positioned and enjoyed every role that I took and really made a difference both for the the companies I was working with and the impact that we had on the markets that we were targeting. Wow. So I want to pick out on a few things that you mentioned. Uh, you know, one is serendipity. The other is curiosity, kind of summarizing what you mentioned. The other is opportunity and then confidence to actually co-found with two other gentlemen in an in, in industry that was just budding. Um, let me ask you and, this. And I'll, um, uh-huh. I'll add to that. Um, after Christina talked about her part, flexibility also an ability to pivot. 
because I remember at that point in time, people really would get something in their head and they would hang on to it. But Christina, talk about what you, your points were, because let's start there. Let's start. Yeah, so I was so one of the things I was thinking about um, that you mentioned a book that uh, the Megatrends book. Um, I'm actually reading a book now called The Big Nine by Amy Webb. Uh, you know, who's a futurist. And so she's talking a lot about AI and some of the future trends. So it's interesting that sometimes a book can it spark uh, excitement or spark a new idea or help you to see how the world is changing and allow you to come up with a business idea or at least want to get into that. So I have a question. If you were starting a business today, do you think you would have taken the same path and same journey? Uh, what challenges do you think remain the same as a, a woman starting business? I definitely would have followed the same path that I was in, and and, uh, I would have started a a business in technology again. I'm probably one of the least technical people anybody has ever met, and the reason for that is while I'm very excited about the impact that technology can have on all of us as consumers – or on organizations and institutions and the government, to me it's not about the technology itself. Mm -hmm. It's about what is the value of that technology? What are the benefits that it bestows on the users of that technology? Again, it's really all about the marketing. And um, as someone who has spent their entire career in the marketing role in getting businesses off the ground and in the marketing role in getting new products launched and in the marketing role of growing a company, to me, marketing is really what it is all about. And so while uh, the technology excites me, it's really about how to interpret what that technology delivers to Mm -hmm. a particular audience and being able to adequately communicate that value and that benefit to those people or those organizations so they decide they just can't live without this. Right. Mm-hmm. Can, can, you, can you dive into that a little bit more and maybe give us an example of you know, one of the marketing opportunities that you worked on for the technology companies or the e-commerce uh, company that you started? So I'll talk about uh, United Press International, which is, you know, way back in my career, way back in the in the 80s. So uh, people may remember it as uh, the number two worldwide news agency with AP, Associated Press, being the number one leader for years and years and decades, actually. So uh, UPI in the late 80s was bought by a private equity firm. And I was brought on to look at the corporate market for real-time news. Well, it's hard to imagine that back then there was no real-time news delivery to an organization's employees' desktops. And that was my mission. I was hired to figure out how do we make corporate executives recognize that they need to have real-time information and that waiting for tomorrow's Wall Street Journal or Washington Post (laughs) or New York Times wasn't good enough. Mm -hmm. So we created a whole series of real-time news products based on the UPI news feeds that we were selling to radio, TV, and newspapers and redirected it to the corporate marketplace. And so the challenge there was to to educate the market that they needed something that was never before available and to show how 
having real-time news was going to put them a step ahead of their competition and give them information sooner that they could act on to make better decisions in their role for their company. So if you look at what I've just relayed, it's taking what that technology in delivering real-time news to their desk could do for them that would give them a competitive edge in the marketplace. So having that information sooner than anybody else would give them that flexibility and that opportunity to make decisions first that could be more impactful and more successful for their company. Liz, this is Zena. What I find so interesting about what you're saying, and you know, I'm in PR, um, discussing how you were the least technical person and, you know, to be a part of this whole big tech movement and how you've taken that opportunity and you turn into a positive. And uh, people used to say to me all the time, stop saying you don't know, understand tech, you don't know tech. Once I got involved with that startup and tech community, and then over time I did realize as well how important it is to look at tech from a different lens, which you've done, and to even be a part of UPI and then get bought, by, you know, once that company was bought by a company, and now we're talking about real-time news, which is now, you know, every, you know, people doing it every day. So I know looking back on it, when you were first hearing about it, you must have been in shock to see where it is today. Exactly. And, you know, when I look at some of the other early roles that I had, those companies were doing very groundbreaking things mm -hmm. using technology platforms that weren't done before. Mm -hmm. And so educating the market on the value and the benefits of what that technology would do for them in their career and for their company's success is really all about tech. And when I look at the companies that I work with today, uh, my clients are all in the technology space. They're all software companies, mm -hmm. and they're all business-to-business -business software companies. Mm. And in many cases, most of those founders come out of the technology background. Mm. They're all computer science um, graduates, or they're all experts in software engineering mm -hmm. and software development. So in many cases, they've created a new software product, and they come to me and say, wow, you know, look at what I've just built. It's very cool. It's great. But who needs it? Right. right. So that's probably the least likely way uh, to become a successful company. But if you get involved early enough and look at what audience would benefit from that technology, and that's the experience that I bring to these kinds of companies where they're basically a product in search of a market. Mm -hmm. And we look at, well, what market could use this and benefit by it? Uh, then I can get them on the right path to a trajectory that will lead to market adoption and future success. But it's the companies that build technology because it's cool and then sit back and wait for users to show up that's not really a recipe for success. Right. They have the build it and they will come mentality yeah. right. as opposed right. to. So how do, you, how do you advise companies who are, you know, heavy tech and may not have the cross-functional, as I call it, cross-functional team or kind of cross-domain team that include a marketer or a storyteller or, you know, someone who can help on um, articulating the value? You know, one of the things you mentioned was, you know, you need something that was never available before. How do you really articulate that and, and build a team that can help you articulate that? What advice do you give? 
Yeah. So first, first off, the founders have to be willing to accept the advice of someone who comes from that domain. In other words, they have to be willing to trust me. And I'm working with a company right now. I won't give the name because we're in the midst of getting ready to relaunch this. So this company had built a very interesting platform for a very undefined audience with a very undefined, unclear value proposition and had been at it for about four years. And throughout that four-year time frame, tested different markets, failed, tried a new approach, failed, tried about five or six different target audience and never really could understand uh, who the real buyer would be and, and, and what this technology could do. So they gave up in trying to do it themselves and, and brought me on board. And I looked at it, spent time with the founders, and basically did a major pivot and planted this company in a very different space, one that they've never attempted to sell into mm-hmm. before. Had to completely rebrand the company, get rid of the old name, come up with a brand new name that fit with the new mission and the new strategy. And all of that can only happen if the founders trust mm-hmm. people like myself. Because basically what I'm doing is coming in and saying, well, you know, this baby that you've got here, uh, the baby isn't doing well. You know, uh, we got to fix the baby, we got to cure the baby, and we got to put the baby in a very different direction than what you were doing. Mm-hmm. And they have to be they have to be open to that. They have to be willing to accept that, and they have to be willing to trust me. And when I've got entrepreneurs that are coachable and willing to be open-minded and see that the paths that they had been previously on didn't work, uh, and they're willing to stake the future on where I'm putting them, then it works. And I won't take on clients that are not willing to hand over the reins and help me fix it because I don't need to spend my time trying to teach them marketing. I need to spend my time helping the company by fixing the marketing, uh, you know, hurdles that they weren't able to get over. Right. I totally understand that. Let's take this back and I think, to, to the Oh, and I was okay. just going to say, and I think it's so important, too, what you were talking about is pivoting, right? Like, so one of the things that you had said before early on in your journey is, you know, certainly during the 90s when we had the first dot-com boom and then bust, a lot of people weren't able to pivot quickly enough to figure out, okay, you know, business fundamentals are still there. And so you're helping people pivot at a point when it's not too late. I know that as a fellow marketer, one of the things that we try to really impress upon clients and I think is really important for startups to understand is marketing actually starts before you create the product or service. So I really love what you said, Liz. I think that's yeah, and you're cool. exactly right. Marketing really is the first thing. You know, if if more entrepreneurs, male or female, sat back and said, "Who needs what I'm thinking about starting? Am I solving a problem in the market? Am I filling a gap that exists?" And when I look at where female founders are focusing their time. I think the message that I would give to them is look at what impact you can have on what specific segment of the market. 
We've done a lot of research at the National Women's Business Council on um, where female-owned companies stand today. So, for example, right now there are about 12 million women-owned businesses in the country, which is fantastic. And they make up 40% of all businesses in the country, which is great. And they contribute about $1.8 trillion to the economy, which is awesome. But here's what is not good at all. 90% of those 12 million women-owned businesses have one employee, the woman. So what are these? They're independent contractors, they're graphic artists, they're freelance writers, they're yoga instructors, dog walkers. They are single or sole proprietors. How do we get those 90% of 12 million, you know, 11 million, how do we get those 11 million women business owners to think about what would it take for me to hire one person to grow this business? And is it a business that they want to grow Mm -hmm. and run? So there's a lot of psychographics that come into play when we look at women-owned businesses. And when we look at the reasons behind why they start the companies they do, it isn't always because they want to grow and build a big company. Often they are married and have children and want to be home to raise their kids, but do something on the side and have the flexibility. So there's a lot going on when we examine the women-owned business uh, ecosystem to support women-owned businesses because there's a a, a huge variety in what women are starting and building and what they want to accomplish for themselves from the standpoint of a business enterprise. Liz, this is Zena again. So how how is the National Women's Business Council helping with this? How are they helping to change and uh, and change this this ninety percent number? Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So when I became chairman of the council, one of the first things that I was charged with accomplishing is putting together our board of board of advisors. And we're made up of 15 women, eight of which are uh, women that are presidents of their own businesses. And one of the things that was uh, really mandated by the legislation that created us is we have to have diversity of the businesses that they run. So we can't have eight companies that are all the same. We have to have diversity in the regions around the country that they're from, so I can't have everybody from D.C., even though I'm here. And we have to have just diversity in the person itself so that we don't all have, uh, you know, eight white women of the same age. So age, um, ethnic background, geographic dispersion, and difference in industry were all important. In addition to that board, we have six women presidents of women business organizations. 
I'll give you a couple of examples. The Women's Presidents Organization has a seat on our board. Um, the National Association of Women Business Owners, NABO, has a seat on our board. And one of the things that I have decided was in looking at what we're going to focus on during my three-year term, I needed some new voices to our table. So one of the issues um, that I've picked, I've picked three, has to do with access to capital and raising money, whether it's through crowdfunding, whether it's through SBA microloans, whether it's through venture capital. And I invited, and she was just recently approved, the founder and president of the Veneta Project. Mm -hmm. uh, that's an organization that's national in scope, and it represents women in tech startups because women in tech startups have lots of challenges in raising money to get their companies off the ground as well as through various growth stages. So I thought having the voice of women in tech from a startup standpoint at our table was going to be important. Um, and as I looked at how to comprise this board, I wanted to have representation of um, women in fields that were important for us as a gender to try to expand and grow. One being organizations that are focused on, I'll call them STEM kinds of backgrounds, so science, technology, engineering, architecture. And uh, what can we do to get young girls starting at school age interested in pursuing those careers in high school and college, and then starting companies that are based on those kinds of, uh, you know, skill sets, and not just what I've been seeing around the country, which is what I call the three Fs. Women are starting lots of companies based on food, family, and fashion. Now, don't get me wrong. We all use those kinds of organizations and companies. We all use those products. They're great. But those are not the companies that are necessarily investable by venture capital dollars. When we look at where all venture capital money goes every year, women only get about 2% of it. And we're talking trillions of dollars. Well, when we think about why that is, let's go back to one of those first statistics that I quoted only 10% of all women-owned businesses have more than one employee. So about a million point, you know, 1.2 million companies are only available for VC kinds of money. Mm -hmm. And then venture capital firms tend to invest in technology-based companies. And we hear all about this in terms of what's going on in Silicon Valley. Now, there are exceptions, of course. It's not 100% of all venture capital dollars. But if women are looking at starting a business, there's great opportunity in technology-based platforms, and there's great opportunity in um, non-3F companies, so construction companies, engineering companies, you know, science-related, medical-related, those kinds of fields. And so if I were to give advice to women today 
who are thinking about maybe I really want to be an entrepreneur and maybe my personality is really built that way and what I'm doing today doesn't help me realize the kinds of things that would make me happy and more successful as a person, I urge you, look at where's the money going? Because the majority of startups fail after the first year because they don't have enough capital. And so if you follow the money and are interested in starting something that you're going to be passionate about, that's the number one thing. If you're not passionate about it, don't do it because it won't succeed. It needs the entrepreneur's undying 24-7 passion to make it happen. So what are some of the ways that NWBC advocates with Congress, the White House, and the SBA, which is a small business administration? And what are some of the ways the legislative influences affect entrepreneurship? Sure. Um, so that really is what our organization uh, was uh, legislated to do, was to become advocates for women business owners to those three entities. And just one little interesting note, um, when we were founded in 1988, most states required women business owners to get uh, a male relative to co-sign any business loan they wanted to take out. Crazy. I mean, that was only 30 years ago. So that requirement went out the door with the same piece of legislation that founded our organization. And I think back then the thinking was, well, we need a group that's going to look at what other crazy laws are out there that are hampering women's ability to start and grow companies. So what we're doing under my chairmanship over the next three years to advocate for women is first picking three issues rather than trying to cover every issue, which is a long list, as we all know. We're focusing on how do we get more women in STEM-related areas to start companies in those areas. Number two, what unique things or hurdles do women founders in rural communities face that we can fix? And number three, uh, how can we make access to capital more available and more accessible? Layered on top of that, the ways we are advocating are going to be through what I call the three C's. You could tell I'm a marketer. <laughs> First is communication. Um, there are many women's organizations, and we don't want to reinvent the wheel. If there are groups that are out there focusing on any one of these three issues, we are now starting to work with them so that we can add our voice to theirs and become that much stronger. The second is convening, and we are doing that by setting up roundtables around the country as well as on Capitol Hill where we bring in legislators and let them hear from women on one of the three issue topics. We just recently did a roundtable in Pella, Iowa, very rural community, with about 15 women business owners who came and met with uh, us as the NWBC as well as Senator Joni Ernst who wanted to hear 
what are the specific challenges that rural business women are facing. And then the third is collaboration. So where can we work with other agencies that have women business issue initiatives underway that dovetail with the three things that we care about? The challenge is keeping it focused on those three things because there's so much more that is necessary. But we can't do it all, and we can either decide to make an impact little baby steps, which is what my hope is, um, or we end up just getting embraced in analysis paralysis and, and nothing happens. And as a business owner, we're going to make things happen. Absolutely. So. My background, I think, is unique for this chairmanship in that I've been a woman-owned small business owner pretty much uh, since the early 90s, and I understand the challenges through every step of starting and growing a company that women face. So it, this, this role isn't something that is outside of my wheelhouse. It's very much in line with what I have been spending my career doing for the last 20 years. And that's why I'm so excited about it. And that's why I'm so excited about carving out a couple of things that we can make happen. And so we can make it that much easier for different women-owned business groups to maybe get a leg up and get us a few steps forward a lot faster. Lynn, let me just make sure that everybody understands what your three focus areas are right now. So one is access to capital. Number two, well, and not these aren't in order, but these are the three things you said. Sure. Right, access to capital, making sure there aren't laws that are getting in the way of being able to, for women particularly, to start, run, and grow their businesses. And then was the third one kind of reaching out to people in different parts of the country, meaning rural areas as, a, as a, in addition to urban? Were those kind of the three focus areas? I just want to make sure that our listeners really understand kind of what you're, what you're working on sure. over the next three years. Yeah. So the, yeah, so the three focus areas are access to capital. You're exactly right. The second is how do we get more women to start businesses in STEM-related areas? Uh, rather them. than okay. fashion, food, and Main Street businesses. Um, the vast majority of women business owners are in Main Street businesses, hair salon, yoga studio, bakery, coffee shop. You know, We all use those, but, but those present different challenges than um, technology-based as well as ability to hire more people and grow. And then the third, so we have capital, STEM, and then the third is rural entrepreneurship for women business owners. Do they face unique challenges that women in urban cities do not face? And so the way we're oh, okay. tackling those three areas is through the communication with other agencies, through the convening of these roundtables around the country, and through the collaboration with other women business organizations that are also tackling these three. So rather than us being a lone voice, we're looking to build consensus, and the impact that that consensus bears uh, is that much greater. So everything that we advocate for doesn't necessarily have 
a legislative aspect to it. There are many programs that the SBA offers that may still be a secret to women business owners. So we may work with SBA to help raise the profile of some of those programs. So for example, SBA makes microloans available uh, through their SBA-approved lenders around the country, and they give out hundreds of millions of dollars every year in microloans. So a microloan is a small loan, like usually $13,000. Well, microloans are really important to Main Street businesses. And sometimes you just need that much money to get equipment or, uh, you know, to refurbish your shop or whatever it takes. It doesn't always mean you need a $1 million tranche of money. So microloans are important. But do all women business owners know those exist or how to go about getting them? When it comes to crowdfunding, there is a, there is a certain dollar limit that if you raise money above that dollar limit, it sets off all kinds of paperwork and filings that you have to do with the SEC. So is that really necessary? We've got a subcommittee of my board that is looking into that right now to determine, well, is that the right cap on money raised? Because if women are able to raise more money by crowdfunding, well, that's a pretty good thing. But why burden them with paperwork if they go above a certain dollar amount? So we're we're tackling that in terms of working with the SEC ultimately and understanding what can we do to make it easier to perhaps raise a lot more money that way. So we haven't come up with at the moment what our recommendations are in any of these three areas, but we've got subcommittees of my board working on all three of these areas to come up with what the recommendations should be. And in many cases, we don't want more laws. You know, businesses are strangled with enough regulation and, um, you know, overhead associated with that. In some cases, it may be Let's get rid of this regulation. You know, it may be on the books for 100 years, just like the 1988 requirement that women needed a male relative to sign a business loan. So those are the things that we're focusing on. Access to capital, STEM, starting STEM businesses, and rural entrepreneurship. Correct. Let's talk about the importance, then, of rural entrepreneurship to the economy. And how can NWBC, or how is it working to provide the right platform and connect these voices to policymakers? Or tell us more about what you're doing there. So one of the things, well, there's several things that we're looking at. So, um, and, and actually, all three of these tend to intersect with each other in, in various places. So um, w- looking at what are the kinds of companies that are being created in non-urban areas by women, and what challenges are they facing? So one in particular that we heard from our roundtable experience in Iowa recently was access to a talented workforce. So as the companies are growing, they need people. And in rural areas where people are living very far apart, rather than in dense urban centers, that's a challenge. And they need, uh, I don't know if you want to call it mentorship or advisory opportunities. 
that in a rural community, you don't have to the extent that you have in, let's say, D.C., where we've got a handful of incubators, all different, all within maybe a 10-minute Uber ride. So you don't have that in communities where people have to drive an hour to go meet with a, you know, a potential mentor. So what are the things that we can do to help women get the um, information and get the support that women in urban centers uh, have readily available that you know, we don't think twice about? So those are just a couple of the things that um, were uh, identified through this roundtable. And as we continue to do more of those around the country, we'll start to collect uh, more, you know, wish list items. And then we'll look at what are the things that are already in place that we can have an impact on. So maybe we work with the SBA and say, um, you need a special information campaign, or maybe your SCORE network, S-C-O-R-E, which is a network of about 10,000 business professionals that volunteer their time to help startups. You know, maybe you've got to promote that more in rural communities, much greater than what you do in urban centers. So those are the things that we're looking at, and I'm sure there'll be, you know, much more um, details around those and even in a, a longer list of things that we're going to try to help women in those um, communities. Well, and I know you guys do a lot of reports and so forth. I mean, we had um, NWBC and NWBC representatives on last season sharing your findings from the Access to Capital crowdfunding study. And, you know, you guys put out a lot of great data on things like, you know, entrepreneurship for women in different areas, including millennial entrepreneurs. Um, tell us a little, bit, a little bit about that study that um, came out. We're going to change gears away from the rural stuff because I know you talked a lot about, like, what's going on there, and I think it's so fascinating. But with this recent study on millennial entrepreneurs, I think perhaps I had assumed, maybe a lot of us had assumed, that millennial entrepreneurship is growing, but your study found the opposite. Um, two things that we kind of highlighted um, amongst ourselves, that number one, millennials are starting fewer businesses than older generations that at the same age, and second, millennial women are more racially and ethnically diverse than entrep entrepreneurial women of prior generations. So some good things and maybe some not so good things about that study. Could you tell us just more about what you found and kind of sure. a little bit about that study, if you don't mind. Sure. And feel free to, you know, throw in any research on rural women in addition to kind of what we just talked about with the round table and so forth too, if that, if that makes sense. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, the prior uh, administration of NWBC did quite a bit of research we are not doing any research under my administration. Instead, you know, again, I'm a business owner. We are going to do things to start making a difference. We'll take the benefits of all the statistics gleaned from those past research studies, but for the next three years, we're done with research. We're all about making things happen. So let me talk about that millennial 
women business owners study. So we found that one in three women business owners are between the ages of 25 and 44. And the majority of them are married. Now, what we don't know is the why behind all of that. So we can speculate that young women start having a family at a young age, and they want the flexibility of staying home, taking time off of their full-time job, and raising their kids, but doing something on the side. So that maybe delivers those, you know, 90% of women business owners that are just one-person operations. Another piece of data that came out of that same study was that the student loan debt has been a big deterrent for millennial women to really start companies that they want to build. That's interesting. So we've got these two dynamics going on. They're married. They've got young kids. They want the flexibility to stay at home. They don't have the time that it takes, and anyone who's an entrepreneur knows it's 24 hours a day. You're not working nine to five. And then getting the capital to support that is a challenge. So we found some interesting data that I've shared, but the why behind it is still um, up for interpretation and maybe more examination. If we look at um, the different nationalities and ethnic backgrounds of women starting businesses, from other studies, we've seen some interesting findings. So black women entrepreneurs have become one of the fastest growing segments of entrepreneurs in the whole country. So nearly two-thirds of all black-owned businesses are black women-owned businesses. Between uh, 2007 and 2012, the number of black female-owned firms climbed 66%. So back in 2007, there were about 900,000, and by 2012, it was up to about 1.5 million. Again, we don't know how large those are, but if we look at and we remember that of the 12 million businesses, only 10% of them have more than one employee, um, those numbers tend to suggest, again, these are one-person organizations. Another trend, if we look at... Um, Hispanic women-owned firms in the United States. Uh, a couple years ago in 2016, there's an estimated 1.9 million Hispanic women-owned firms, and they employed about 550,000 employees in total. But the rate of these women entrepreneurs starting firms, again, just in Hispanic circles, it's less than their share of the general population. So let me explain that. So Hispanics make up a little over 8% of the total population, and women entrepreneurs who are Hispanic make up around 5%. So 
So there's a lot of disparity uh, based on ethnic background, based on where these companies are popping up, rural versus urban, based on the types of industries. If we look at some of the industry trends, three industries in which women-owned businesses have the highest total revenue are wholesale and retail, Combined, that's over a third. But then professional, scientific, and technical, those three together is only 10%. Mm. After that, everything is in single digits. So what do we do to help which groups of women grow those companies and suggest or provide the resources easily accessible to them that they need in order to do that kind of growth, both from capital, people resources, mentorship, et cetera. Liz, I love Ooh. that under your leadership, you are focused on making things happen. And I've seen you in action of making things happen. And um, through NWBC, but also you were very, very active in the startup ecosystem, especially here locally. Um, some of the um, ecosystem, um, some of the companies you're involved in are Heraha, Veneta, which you mentioned earlier, and um, um, and Beacon. You've been you've been you've been helping a lot of the companies that are within Beacon. How has the insight gained from these organizations shaped and supported your current initiatives? Oh, uh, thanks for asking that because it really uh, fed into my focus on those three areas. Um, the access to capital and the and the STEM, those two in particular. So in in the DC area, as we all know, because that's where we're located, we've got a very robust technology startup ecosystem, and we've got lots of resources, both uh, from the organizations that you just named, as well as all of the universities. And we are so fortunate to have. Um, University of Maryland with a huge entrepreneurship program, George Washington with a huge entrepreneurship program, GW, uh, I'm sorry, Georgetown, uh, Howard University, George Mason, American University. We've got five universities all within a stone's throw of each other uh, that are creating programs that are campus-focused, helping launch technologies through the student-run enterprises, getting them into the, the local community and then having the support systems through those organizations and other incubators that are here to help nurture them. We also have the benefit of multiple angel groups. I've been an angel investor for, I don't know, five or six years, maybe even more. And we have cashed-out entrepreneurs like myself and other like-minded serial entrepreneurs that want to help the next generation of entrepreneurs. So we invest our own money in startups. And I created my focus for my particular portfolios to be, again, what I know, which is B2B software companies. And um, I've been excited by uh, what I'm seeing in the startup ecosystem and the opportunities that we've got today 
for other entrepreneurs, male or female, to do something that's entrepreneurial. And, you know, I think it's important for people to do it when they're young and for people to fail often when they're young because there's less overall impact and disruption to life and family when you're on your own starting a company that may not have made it the first time. But boy, there's nothing like learning when you graduate from the School of Hard Knocks. (laughs) So we've got a tremendous amount of resources, and it's been my involvement with those organizations and incubators and um, entrepreneurship programs Uh, especially the Dingman Center program at University of Maryland that really fed into the the two out of the three uh, focus uh, issues for MWBC. Yeah, Liz, thank you so much for for, um, highlighting that and also just giving some really specific uh, trends and statistics. We love that on the show. One that I actually want to focus on just a little bit and kind of dive into that is around with the types of businesses that women own, you mentioned that professional, scientific, and technical service areas takes up about 10% of the types of um, businesses owned. Everything else is pretty much in single digits. Uh, so I am a woman, minority-owned business as well, in the technology consulting space. And I'm always interested in the federal procurement process. As you know, the federal government is one of the largest markets. Um, and I think right now I, I heard a statistic that said something like 4.7% of business, federal government business, goes to women businesses. So that's less than 5%. What are some of the ways that you, as kind of this action taker and really making a change, how are you looking at helping more women-owned businesses, particularly those in high-tech or emerging tech space, navigate this federal procurement process? I'm so glad that you asked that because that that issue is really part of our access to capital issue. So here's what we are learning. There's a lot of squishiness going on in the certification process for a women-owned business to be stamped a certified women-owned business. There are two paths. Path one is a self-certification process, and path two is a certification by an organization called WeBank, W-B-E-N-C. What we have been seeing is that the self-certification process may not be 100% accurate. Mm -hmm. What we are learning is that male-owned businesses are putting a female down as the woman-owned when in fact they are not woman owned. Mm -hmm. And they do that when they self-certify them and there are no checks and balances to make sure it really is a woman owned business and not a male owned business. So we're looking at the overall certification process and coming up with what our recommendations will be to make sure that truly woman owned businesses are able to adequately compete for those federal dollars. Because if they are up against big companies, male-owned, but on quote-unquote paper, appear to be female-run when they're not, then there's a huge disadvantage and uh, unfairness. So the whole certification process is something that we're looking at. The second
second thing is federal government is not big on hiring uh, sole proprietors. Mm -hmm. I mean, most of the contracts for lucrative federal jobs are multi-year, multi-million dollars. They need companies with resources and headcount and enough people on the bench to be able to do the work. So for women to be able to uh, put a competitive bid together, well, they pretty much need to be on a team where companies have more employees so that the sole proprietor can be part of something as a subcontractor. But the bigger picture is how can we get more women to start the kinds of companies that the federal government is buying from because the federal government is the largest procurer of products and services. So that kind of rolls into the whole STEM issue. And if women are starting companies that provide the products and services that the government is buying, and we can help them grow those beyond one person, you know, to two, to 22, to 102, then it's going to be that much easier for them to win those those government procurements. And if we can clean up the certification process so that there's no unfair things going on with certification, then we really give women a chance and, and a shot at getting some of those very large and lucrative government bids. Thank you so much for that. Um, I know we can talk for hours and hours about uh, some of the trends and issues and what the work that you're doing. So we hope to have you back on the show as you do make progress. Um, one, two things I want to ask before we kind of wrap up. One is you mentioned convenings and roundtables. How would any of our listeners or other um, women-owned businesses, if they want to participate in the convening, how would they go about doing so? Oh, we would love to have them. And uh, I would suggest uh, going to the NWBC website, which is uh, nwbc.sba.gov. Sign up for our email list, for our newsletter, so that you can stay in communication with us. And uh, we're going to be very communicative, again, one of my C's, by making information readily available. And we're actually considering doing a local roundtable, uh, perhaps in the Baltimore area, in the coming months, that will address this whole issue of government contracting and procurement for women-owned businesses and the hurdles and the challenges that I mentioned. And so we would love to have women that have experienced this firsthand and hear what other hurdles they need to uh, overcome. Great. And then how can our listeners follow you on social media? So I'm on Twitter, and my handle is at LizSarahPR, PR as in public relations. And I'm on LinkedIn. I invite anybody to connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, I, while I'm on Facebook, I don't do too much there, but I think LinkedIn and Twitter would be the best ways to stay in touch with me. Great. Well, we absolutely appreciate you being, being on the show, Liz. Um, Zena or Aurelia, anything else? No, I just want to tell everybody where you can find us. Um, we are at GetFoundGetFunded.com, and then we're also on social media um, at Twitter, um, GetFound underscore 
GetFunded, and then on Instagram as well at GetFund underscore GetFunded. And Liz, this has been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for um, you know being on it because I know you're busy. You are you are busy bee, and uh, I know also <laughs> you're taking care of your mom too, long distance because you and I have talked about that as well. So um, I, I really appreciate you taking time to talk about a little about your background and also about NWBC. Well, thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed our chat today and hope it's the first of many and wish you much success with your podcast series. And I look forward to hearing some of your future guests. Thank you. Thanks, Liz, for being with us today. We are so excited, as always, to have a guest from the National Women's Business Council to learn more about your work and what you're up to. Liz gave us some really interesting statistics. Only 10% of women-owned businesses in the U.S. have more than one employee. And so for those businesses that really want to grow and scale, they need some support, and that's what the council is there for. She talked about the, the uh, statistics that we've heard a lot. Only 2% of VC money goes to women founders, something that we're working hard to change here. But there's a lot going on behind the scenes that they contribute to $1.8 trillion of the U.S. economy, women-owned businesses do, and that when they do grow and scale, that there's so much at stake for women. The three foci for the National Women's Business Council over the next ten, the next few years, the tenure of Liz as a board chair, rural entrepreneurship, access to capital, and building STEM businesses, as opposed to just Main Street businesses, which we learned about. And Liz talked about her strategy of communication, convening, and collaboration to really get that word out. So... Liz, thanks again for being with us. We are so excited to have you, and we look forward to continuing the conversation and learning more about what NWBC is up to in the future. And for those who have not yet checked out their website, please do so and learn more. Thanks, as always, for joining us on Get Found, Get Funded. You can find us online at getfoundgetfunded.com. We're on social media, on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, and please subscribe to the podcast on your preferred platform, whether it be iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify, and don't miss an episode.